Nothing underscores just how much we do not live in the future as the daily commute. If traveling by car, then chances are the vehicle is running on a combustion engine, around since 1886, which is emitting carbon and hastening climate change. The morning headlines blaring from your speakers are transmitted through radio waves, a form of communication that alerted people on land that the Titanic was sinking back in 1912. Meanwhile, the insult of public transportation is seemingly universal. Timely, clean, and reliable buses and trams are not the norm, but the hallmark of a well-managed, well-funded city. And for those lucky enough to catch the breeze in their hair by walking or biking to work, well, those simple pleasures are more timeless than they are ultra-modern. For all of these modes of transport, it does not look all that different from how our grandparents got to work. The pandemic has changed that, all at once, but not for all. Now, more attention is being paid to places that make the commute more sustainable, safer, and in some cases, just more fun. The National spoke to more than a dozen experts in urban planning, economics, transportation, and real estate to understand the changing shape of a global pastime around since ancient Greece, the daily commute. A recent New Yorker cartoon depicts a now familiar tableau. A woman in athleisure at a kitchen table, laptop open to yet another Zoom meeting. An open box of donuts is beside her. The caption reads, I brought donuts. It's funny, but it's also bittersweet. The social nature of work is ultimately what will drive us back, according to early surveys of remote workers. We protest, but deep down, we do want to share a box of donuts with our colleagues. In a recent global survey by real estate consultancy JLL, remote work should double going from 1.2 days pre-pandemic to 2.4 days a week post-pandemic. Ironically, most of this nomadic work will happen at home. Nearly three-quarters of employees want to continue working from home two days a week on average. Remote work will also take place in alternative places, such as co-working spots, which a growing percentage of employees support, from 30% pre-crisis to 40% now. The thing is, where we end up returning to could be far from the offices we left back in March 2020. For those who have replaced a commute with opening their laptop, eventually, video meetings will be replaced by a trip to a virtual reality. Some of the world's most valuable companies, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, and now Roblox, are ramping up efforts to make augmented and virtual reality more of, well, a reality. Facebook plans to release its first pair of AR glasses this year seven years after acquiring VR startup Oculus for $2 billion. Here's founder Mark Zuckerberg at a 2016 event talking about the new technology. There's a saying in technology that it's often easier to predict what the world is going to be like 20 years from now than it is to predict uh, what the world's going to be like three years from now. Right? And I think we all know in virtual reality uh, what the world's going to be like 20 years from now. It's going to be the next major computing platform. So the real question is, what do we need to do over the next three years or next few years uh, to help make that possible? And you know, we believe that the, the key for the next phase is building these great software experiences uh, to unlock all these different things. Microsoft, meanwhile, is a step ahead. It unveiled its own virtual reality platform for developers in March called Mesh. It'll be compatible with its pricey AR headset, the HoloLens, which retails for around $3,000 meaning it isn't ready for mainstream or wide business case use quite yet. Apple, too, is rumored to have plans to roll out an AR device in 2022. 
gaming company Roblox went public in March and is now hovering at a $38 billion market cap. Analysts say that value is not derived from making video games for Gen Z and younger, like it is right now. Instead, it is the future vision to build a real-life metaverse, not unlike the one depicted in pop culture as in the book Ready Player One. From its prospectus filed to the SEC ahead of going public, Roblox described its current world. An average of 36.2 million people from around the world come to Roblox. Together, they play, learn, communicate, explore, and expand their friendships, all in 3D digital worlds that are entirely user-generated, built by our community of nearly 7 million active developers. We call the emerging category human co-experience, the company said. Ultimately, it wants this human co-experience to reach billions of users and to expand beyond gaming to include meetings, collaboration, and participation in the Roblox economy, built on a digital currency called Robux that can be purchased with hard cash. While virtual reality is fast developing, in the real world, commuting is ultimately shaped by the prevailing forces of economics. And even as tens of millions of COVID-19 jabs are being stuck into arms around the world, heralding a return to normal activity, the economics aren't good. How people get to and from work came to the fore as a social justice issue in 2020, as essential and wage-based workers, a large fraction of the global workforce, were pressed to continue to physically show up at their jobs, risking their lives instead of their livelihoods. Meanwhile, the World Bank estimates that about 100 million people will likely fall into poverty due to the impact of the pandemic, with as many as 49 million falling into extreme poverty. Many of these new poor will be living in cities and are self-employed, mostly working in the informal sector. Here's what Sami Waba, a global director at the World Bank, had to say. You started seeing many cities starting to to position themselves like, you know, how do I deal with this situation and how do I start planning for the recovery? And in the domain of mobility, what we've seen on the one hand, we've seen a lot of cities starting to notice that their existing mobility infrastructure is inadequate. There's a great range of functions within a city which are essential workers. If you're a nurse, you're not going to lead you into a, you know, um, if you're a police person, you know, if you're a teacher, you know, maybe some online education, but not everyone. If you're a barista in a cafe, so if you're collecting garbage, again, you know, uh, so you have a lot of jobs that are essential jobs that require presence in person, and a large segment of these are uh, not your highest paying jobs. So, so these jobs will need to go to work, and if these jobs cannot afford to live closer to work, In affordable housing, then either you're going to have to compensate for their wages or you're going to have unfilled jobs. A San Francisco type place, you know, where there is no affordable housing. So any place that had a crisis of affordable housing had to contend with, you know, its inability to attract new workers and its inability to retain talent. So in the U.S., you know, they introduced a legislation called inclusionary zoning, which says that if a market rate developer provides a large housing development or a large commercial development, they will need to contribute to an affordable housing fund because what they're doing, you know, further pushes up land prices, Mm -hmm. further gentrifies the city, and you need essential workers, you know, many of whom cannot afford that housing to be within that city. As a result, 
cities are and will continue to be on the front line of coping with the pandemic and its lasting impacts, according to the World Bank. To that end, experts predict continued adoption and investment from cities in ways to make public transport cleaner and safer. They will need to in order to survive. A major lesson learned was the symbiotic relationship between public transit and essential workers who pay the fares that provide the revenue that keep these services running. We can't isolate them when we talk about what would be the future of commuting because they constitute almost one third of the commute. For someone who's working on the field, who's working on the construction side, who's working in the industry, innovative mode like micro-mobility or e-mobility is not something neat for them. You know, So that is again an area where policymaker and think tank and then financial institution need to think that how we can get them to the mainstream because they are the backbone of the city economy. That was Shailendra Kaushik, an urban development expert based in Dubai and co-founder of the Cities Forum. If COVID-19 has taught us anything, it is that we are at the mercy of biology. This is terrifying to come to terms with during a pandemic, but it is also important to our understanding of how we move about the world. Because our biology, for better or worse, drives us to allocate an average of one hour per day to traveling. This is known as Marchetti's Constant. According to Cesare Marchetti, an Italian physicist who penned his theory in 1994, villages in ancient Greece were, on average, 20 square kilometers, so that the journey from the center to the edge is about an hour's round trip at walking pace. This has played out in urban planning, even as transportation modes have changed across millennia. The size of cities tend to increase in proportion to the speed of their transportation systems so that the periphery is not much more than 30 minutes' journey from its core. So far, Marchetti's constant has reared its head as lockdowns ease. One thing is clear. Commuting is here to stay. But for some, that commute may be closer to home and rely on a different mode of transport. Transportation is very much part of the human condition, so we, we are all born with legs. That was Yale Wong, principal at DR Transportation in Sydney, Australia. He's a firm believer in Marchetti's constant. He has advised clients in Asia and Australia during the pandemic, and he says this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to harness new technologies and push through politically unpopular reforms that can improve city living. The first priority should be to reallocate space away from cars towards sustainable public transport, sidewalks, and bike paths. While the concept isn't very modern, no driverless Apple car slipping into a parking space here— but often that's the simplest, that's the cheapest thing, the highest return on investment you can do. Mr. Wong says this renewed investment in research and development in the public transport sphere is a major opportunity. For cities like Hong Kong and Dubai, both with high rates of mask-wearing compliance, public transit is not facing the same PR nightmare as it is in the U.S. or U.K. This provides opportunity for places that have clean, rapid public transit to export some of their solutions creating jobs, diversifying revenue streams, and spurring innovation. For example, in March, SoftBank Robotics says it will form a new joint venture with a Hong Kong biomedical company that manufactures disinfection robots used to sterilize the city's train cars. The venture will then launch a new cleaning robot tailored for commercial spaces like offices, hotels, and shopping malls. Richard Lambert, founder of Natural Walking Cities based in London, agrees and says the pandemic accelerated a trend of people spending more time in their own neighborhoods and not venturing to a central business district. When you invest in walking and cycling, 
people spend more money on high streets, real estate values go up. It's, it can be a win-win in certain situations. These shorter travel times mean cities can reimagine transportation options and city centers. Cars, buses, and subways make sense for crosstown trips, but walking, scootering, and cycling are preferred for just heading down the block. Urban centers will not only be populated by office blocks and fast casual eateries. Instead, Mr. Lambert predicts office towers will be repurposed to provide cultural and activity hubs, residential space, and more innovative dining and retail options. During the pandemic, cities around the world repurposed public space for recreational purposes. Early in the pandemic, the city of Oakland began temporarily closing some streets to through traffic to promote physically distanced pedestrian and cycling activity during the shelter-in-place orders, something it coined its slow street program. The irony of this public experiment in survival is that actually biking, alfresco dining, and park lounging are all lovely pastimes. Mr. Waba of the World Bank says this will spur an even larger focus on livability. You know, to uh, work from home, you know, you're no longer going to be looking to live as close as possible to the job center, you know, in more expensive real estate. What will attract you to live in the city is the livability. You're going to live in the area closer to the museums, closer to the parks, to the lake. You know, even if you're further out, you know, you go to work one day a week, you know, two days a week. So livability and the amenities and the culture and the diversity in the city are now going to be what attracts much more of that footloose population. Cities began questioning if they had adequate infrastructure for safe commutes during the pandemic. Some places, from Washington, D.C. to Auckland, widen sidewalks. In the EU, more than $1.1 billion has been allocated on cycling-related infrastructure, and 2,300 kilometers of new bike lanes have been rolled out since the pandemic began, according to the European Cycling Federation. In Oakland, the temporary plan designated up to 10% of the city's streets to be closed to through traffic. Meanwhile, San Francisco, London, Houston, and Providence, Rhode Island introduced their own slow streets. Cities with more green space are also likely to attract residents in the recovery, according to urban scientists at the University of Omaha. Helping residents reconnect with nature is likely to result in benefits to well-being and physical health, the researchers found. Well, in the short term, there has been anecdotal evidence of an exodus of families from cities to areas with larger homes and more outdoor space. Experts say the recovery will emphasize a triumphant return to vibrant urban life. It just may not have a center. The rise of what's known as mixed-use space is already impacting real estate. According to a recent report by CBRE, 86% of North American companies plan to use flexible space as a key part of their real estate strategies in the future. WeWork, for one, has refined its real estate strategy. In Paris, for example, people walk or cycle, and within 10 to 15 minutes, you can reach any WeWork location across Paris. And it's been very helpful to members to avoid uh, public transportation and reduce commute. Same thing goes to New York uh, and to London. That was Riyad Tomas, WeWork's general manager for the Middle East and Africa. Previously, WeWork opened massive locations in central business districts. Today, the flexible office space company is likely to open a storefront in a more residential community. In China, where WeWork has over 100 locations and the country is charting a recovery, 90% of workers have already returned to its locations there. Mr. Talmas says the company is focused on offering memberships to a more nomadic workforce. 
Members have access to any WeWork location in the world, meaning a commute may look more like travel. Greater access to flexible workspace anywhere in a city will change the real estate market. Mr. Waba of the World Bank says on a global level, he expects cities to possibly even out a little bit. It's no longer going to be like you're going to have, let's say, the highest land values in the city center and lower land values in the periphery. If the periphery has, you know, much more of the amenities. So wherever you are, the periphery, the core, or somewhere in the middle, the future of the commute is shaping your life one way or another, both in real life and online. Either way, I'll see you out there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recorded. I've been your host, Kelsey Warner, the future editor here at The National. If you liked this episode, please do subscribe to Recorded wherever you listen to podcasts. All that's left is to thank our producers, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. And thank you for listening.